one thing that's obvious has changed is big data. I, I was some of, of a pioneer of, of actually using the then available microdata. So I was on the cutting edge. But you know, most people would just look through BLS publications and copy numbers. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Robert Hall, who is the McNeil Joint Hoover Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work on aggregate labor market behavior. Bob, welcome to The Work Goes On. It's a pleasure. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up initially right where I live now, a few hundred feet from where I live now, at, on the near the Stanford campus. Then my father moved to UCLA uh, and when I was eight, so I spent the second half uh, in West LA. In West LA, what what did your father teach? Physiology. Oh, so he was he a doctor? Well, he had an MD from Stanford, actually. But physiology is the general equilibrium of the body. Yeah, I know it's about <laughs> when they cut you up, I guess that's <laughs> the physiology is one of the things that guides you. Uh, so you lived in Los Angeles. Yes, yes, West LA. I didn't know that. Did you go to high school there? Yeah, I went to university high school. And I see. How interesting. What did you think of Los Angeles? You know, <laughs> when you're a teenager, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, now, I know you went to Berkeley. How did it end up that you went to Berkeley? Berkeley had one of the very best economics departments, it turned out. Of course, that wasn't on my mind when I decided to go there. I was Like almost all economists, I started out as a physics major. And uh, so it was a good place. Uh, not too far from home, but, you know, 400 miles from home. So that's about right. And then what, did your parents move back to Palo Alto? No, no, actually they lived in, in, in Brentwood for the rest of their lives. And I know uh, and then you were at Berkeley. Did you have somebody there who influenced you to go to graduate school? Going to graduate school was a family imperative. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you get into economics if you started at, in physics? First of all, I realized I wasn't really good at physics. I was kind of A minus, not A. And, and then I got, I, I was involved in studying policymaking and, you know, economics seemed, eventually seemed like the right major. And I never, I never regretted that. You were doing policy issues in, when you were in college? Oh, yes. I was very involved in, in the organized democratic party, which my parents were active in. So actually quite early in that, I, I was holding an office in the, in the young Democrats. Um, and that got me very involved in policy. I didn't know that. I, did you ever run for office? Only only within the Democratic Party. Well, now I know you, you were at Berkeley and uh, were there some economists there that influenced you to go to MIT? How did it end up you went to MIT? Oh, well, it was simple. I, I, I talked to people like Sid Winter and especially Dale Jorgensen and 
And they all said, there's only one place to go, and that's MIT. So I applied to MIT. <laughs> and I got in. <laughs> On the strength of letters from <laughs> these people. That sounds like a very sort of straightforward way to get from one place to the other. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I was 23 when I got my PhD. So obviously it was a pretty straight line. I, I know you were very young when you started doing things. What? What? So uh, who did you work with at MIT? Peter Diamond, I'd say more than anyone else, <coughs> was um, the one who read and, and criticized heavily. He was, he was not happy with some of the things I came up with. Uh, Is that right? What what didn't he like? That's good. You know, having a having an early critic was very good. Well, if anything, it must have given you a thick skin. Well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I benefited from it. I, I recognized that. But the the overall major influence on um, almost all graduate students at the time was Robert Solo, and it was an exciting time in economics. And, and Solo was totally on top of things. Wasn't that easy to get working papers in those days? But Solo had had the working papers, and he taught them. It was amazing. Other people, friends of mine, who were, at, for example, at Harvard, were just studying the same old stuff, and everything new was at MIT. I mean, it was it was really dramatic. Was he a good teacher? Solo? Yeah, he was the best teacher in the world. You've had him on this podcast, right? Yeah, we we had a podcast with him. He it was he's ninety eight and a half. Actually, he explained. Right. Yeah, uh, and he certainly had had the his hardball uh, or fastball, I guess we say, uh, if you're talking about baseball. What did you, what was your dissertation about? It was about things that I I remained interested in and and pushed harder later, mostly spreading consumption over time. One one of the big deals in in economics at that time was so called optimal growth. So Solo had created a, a a model in which people had kind of a mechanical role. The, the production side was up to date, but the, it was obvious that that uh, you could think that consumers were optimizing, um, but but they were optimizing through a, a central planner. And but the same equations uh, governed private consumption. So basically, I was pushing the idea of, of in several chapters of my dissertation dealt with. Uh, intertemporal uh, consumption issues. That's interesting. I, I wasn't aware that that was what what you had done originally. Now let, let's your career. Uh, you're at MIT. I what, first job at Berkeley. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, for a while, I was zigzagging back and forth between Berkeley and MIT. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Best departments uh, at the time. So, how long were you at Berkeley? Three years. I got an offer from uh, MIT during that period. And that was kind of attractive. So I went back to MIT as a faculty member. And then you were at, how long were you at MIT? Seven years. And then, uh, and then uh, Stanford. Yeah. After that, uh, I came to, to the Stanford area at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. And then like many other people stayed on as a faculty member. I, I also know that your appointment at Stanford is also in the Hoover Institution. Correct. And that was probably a little controversial at the time you took the position, wasn't it? Well, you know, that, that was people like to say that. In fact, it was, you know, especially in, in economics. I mean, they, they wanted me and there was nothing very controversial about the work that I was doing. The, you know, these reputations don't have much to do with reality. And then you've been at Stanford ever since. I, actually, I want to start the, 
discussion of your work. I read the article you wrote on the 50th anniversary of the uh, Brookings panel. Correct. And uh, I, I was I hadn't even thought about it, but you were one of the first members of the Brookings panel and, and the, one of the first publications, maybe in the first issue of the Brookings Papers and Economic Activity. Isn't that right? That's, yeah, the first year. I think, it, I think it was the second issue. They had three issues that year, so I don't, I don't think it was the very first one. I think it was like the second one. Yeah, and what, you must have been in your 20s? Yeah, it was 1970, so it was 27. 27, and you've been with it ever since. On and off, yeah. What, what, depends, what does with mean in this? <laughs> I mean, I, I attend. I think every, every year I've attended at least one of the meetings. 50 I, years. I've only a few meetings, I think. So that's 50 meetings at least, 50 years. Oh, well, it's always, no, no, it's 100 at least. It's always met at least twice a year. Sometimes early in its history, it met three times, but they cut back from that. Most of the time, it's been two. So it's a, it's a little over 100. But uh, and you went to it, but I just met you, you went to at least 50. Oh, well, yeah, but that's that's a very weak <laughs> statement. I went to a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, I only missed three or four. So, oh, is that right? Actually, I was there more than 100 times. So you, uh, I'm I'm curious that it was started by I know it was started by Art Okun, uh and and George Perry. Okun is no longer with us, of course. How did they come to get you? You know, they talked around. I think they they called up people. They wanted to get mostly fairly young people. So, well, you know, Perry was the MIT PhD, so he had he had connections. It, it was both. It was done on the on the network of people who know what was going on on a current basis in the profession. And your article is really about the history of the labor studies that were done in the Brookings papers. And you go through a large, uh, quite a heroically large number of, uh, of various papers. I'm curious though, over the 50 years, what's changed? Well, one thing that's obvious has changed is big data. I, I was some of a pioneer of, of actually using the then available microdata. In fact, my my first paper uh, made use of that. So so I was on the cutting edge. But, you know, most people would just look through BLS publications and copy numbers and, and put them into the computer. We Everyone on the panel was computerized, I have to say. Big data? What else changed? Well, along with the profession, the, the profession used more and more technical ideas. So, for example, instead of having a consumption function, you have a, a consumption plan that satisfies first-order conditions. More and more papers said the relevant first-order condition is, and that's a sign of, of tightening up of the thinking. It's, it's kind of a tour de force, your paper, actually, in, in going through all of the work that was done in that period. I know I, I, my, the first paper I saw that you'd ever written was about labor supply. And that, that was, I guess, an example of early big data. Yes, it was. Yeah. How yeah. did you come to, it, it was published in this uh, income maintenance volume, I know. How did you come to write that paper? <laughs> it struck me as an important topic. Uh, it was a time when uh, the, the first round of experiments with human subjects had not yet produced results, but it was influential. It got people interested in things like labor supply was a very central issue in the experimental movement that got started in the late 1960s. So so kind of natural. Other people were doing that, and I was this early contributor to what became kind of a standard topic. 
and using microdata to figure out how people chose how many hours to work and what, what the other influences were. Yes, yeah, so one of our earlier podcasts had John Pincavel, who was, uh, wrote this very famous paper, survey basically, of all the microdata studies that were done up to a certain point uh, that he talked about as well. Um, now, I have to ask you this. So 1970 was a year of some inflation. In fact, the beginning of the inflation of the 70s, kind of like today. Do you see those as similar? Well, first of all, you can get some notion of the total. Of, for, at the very first meeting of the of the Brookings panel, a night in the hotel in DuPont Circle cost $14. <laughs> now, now in the same hotel, <laughs> it's more than, it's like 20 times that. It's like 280. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so inflation was an important topic, uh, sometimes more important, sometimes less. But there were very few uh, episodes of, of anything resembling a decline in the price level. So increases in the price level. It was a very one-sided process. still is. And unemployment was low, too. Yeah. Uh, in spite of the fact that the title of my paper is, Why is Unemployment So High? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> uh, I know. I hadn't thought about that. So, uh, what would you say of all the papers you have contributed to the Brookings volumes? Do you have a favorite? Well, that one, the first one, certainly is a favorite because um, it, you know, it, it got a lot of attention. And uh, you know, you, I can't do justice because that's not the way that my brain works. It's not good at compiling lists out of out of a body of data. Yeah, I, I wasn't. Sometimes there there's one that people think of as being something special that they did that that they really like. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you if you broaden it to uh, uh, the, all the uh, articles that I've published, then then I just go with the crowd. I've two very highly cited papers. The one Chad Jones and I had a paper on uh, why some countries have higher output per worker than others which is by far my most cited paper. And then, is that right? I, I, I've read that paper. It's in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, as I recall. Correct, yeah. It was submitted to, but summarily dismissed by the American Economic Review. <laughs> oh, really? Was that me? <laughs> no, was, you, you were always good to me. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is related, um, I think we're covering some of them. Most economists write articles and you just mentioned articles but you've actually written some books well not not ones that compete with articles i haven't i haven't written a book that was just from beginning to end new material no books of course are usually not that are mostly compiled from from other work that i've done but what i i wanted to ask you about one that i think has uh received a fair amount of attention maybe i don't know if your your name is necessarily connected to it as much but that's the the book you did on the flat tax. Oh, okay. I wouldn't call that research. That was sort of promotion. It was it was aimed at the general public and not uh, not at professional economists. Although it actually got a lot of traction from economists because because it was a good idea. What tell, what is the flat tax? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that the flat tax isn't flat, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the story of that is. Rubushka, this is in, in the late 60s, 70s, and there was a, a big tax reduction movement, especially in California, which led to 
Proposition 13 in California. Which, which we should tell people is a, a, was a basically held property taxes fixed for people that didn't sell their houses. And, and, and low to begin with. So yes. Low and even lower as time went by. So, so Babushka was a sort of a player uh, as a political scientist uh, in that. And so he heard about the flat tax from someone else because um, certainly the, the basic idea of some tax simplification was definitely floating around. And then he came to me and he said, what is the flat tax? Um, an economist at MIT, uh, Carrie Brown, uh, had taught me uh, all the principles that would underlie flat tax. It's essentially a cousin of the value-added tax, which subsequently has become a big deal in many many countries other than the U.S. So I sat down and I just sort of went back over my notes from from Carrie Brown's MITK course. And it's a, it's a way of making the value-added tax progressive uh, and because the big knock on the value-added tax is, as a consumption tax, uh, it appears to be regressive. So this could, could be made more progressive according to ways that I outlined. And, and, that, and, that, and that became that book. But, it, but it, was, it was aimed at the general public, as I mentioned before. So the ideas about, the, about tax reform made their way later in, into a journal article. Of course, the book, the book actually influenced economists because it helped promote the idea. Yeah, I think that uh, actually, if you do a Google search on flat tax, the book pops right up. So it's a, I think mm-hmm. there, and it, it seems to be, I, th- I gather I'm not the only one who's actually done that and, uh, <laughs> and found, found your book. Now you have a recent paper. I, I watched you present it, I think, uh-huh. uh, on a, in a, it must've been a Zoom probably during the pandemic uh, on unemployment and uh, recovery from recessions. And I, I was interested when you, there are a couple things. One is the, this uh, consistent decline in unemployment. At the, you know, basically, if I, I realized uh, what you had done is you had a graph in which you showed the decline of unemployment for each business cycle. We're going to come back to the business cycle issue in a second. And just erased the run up in the unemployment rate uh, so that all you got to see were the, were the declines. And they all look pretty similar, even though... They were often at different levels. But what I noticed in your discussion was your focus on the unemployment rate and even your comments to the effect that it was such a good measure of cyclical behavior. Is that what you think? Absolutely. And that's what I've always thought, and I've always been right. (laughs) Now, why why do you think that? By, first of all, observing the history and and a, a large amount of the history the relevant history has played out as I've been involved in, you know, watching these experiences unfold and, and then studying the data. I mean, it, it's, it's an overall judgment. It, it especially recognizes that competing ideas, for example, you know, real GDP is not nearly as good a cyclical indicator because there are, are forces, non-cyclical forces that are very important for the movements of real GDP that, uh, leave no mark on unemployment. So, unemployment is is an untrended and they're and particularly valuable. So you don't have to try to figure out what the trend is. So I'm, that's my idea, and I'm sticking to it. Actually, that's a uh, the, the the real GDP serves many purposes, uh, as you yeah. say, right. cyclical purposes, are not always the one that we're interested in. In any case, 
so I'm glad you said that because this leads me to what I what I'd like to. We're coming to the end of our podcast, and I'd I'd like to talk to you about something that uh, over the 50 years you've also been doing, and that's uh, the business cycle dating. And the, uh, uh, for those that don't know, the National Bureau of Economic Research is a, has a, a dating system. Who now you've been involved with that for many years, isn't that right? Yes, I, I'm. The committee was created in 1978 and I was made chairman and I've been chairman ever since. But there were dating, wasn't there dating of, of recessions and depressions prior to that? Did, who started it? Oh, it's always been associated with the National Bureau of Economic Research. It was done by a, a small group uh, of economists affiliated with the bureau in New York, actually. But they didn't, they didn't really keep records other than, than noting the dates and they didn't publish discussions of how they reached the conclusion. So when, when Martin Feldstein took over the National Bureau and kind of reorganized it completely, one of one of the things was to formalize that process. And that was my job to see that that happened. And it's happened in a totally consistent way ever since. It was in uh, that early group was was this Wesley Claire Mitchell and Arthur Burns and right. Uh, people associated with Columbia University, yes, rather a storied, storied group. Now, what? Let me, you know, we, let's say first of all, the dating of recessions has lots of political implications. I mean, people clearly pay attention to that and and uh, and see it as a, a, a black mark for an administration if a recession happens on its watch and so on. Right, right. Why not just do the dating with the unemployment rate? The, the committee has considered that topic many times and and has always come to the conclusion that looking at a variety of things, it doesn't exclude uh, unemployment, but it includes other physical measures like industrial production and uh, with respect to manufacturing. It is, it's very much a collective process. There's, there's uh, eight members of the committee. And it reaches a consensus before uh, making a, a statement about the statement is just identifying months when there were so-called turning points, when the economy starts to contract, and then, then that period is called a recession, and, and the recession ends when the economy reaches its, its trough, and then and then typically turns around and starts expanding again. And, and you do this well after the the dates when they're, obviously you have to. Uh, yeah. how, how, typically, how much longer after a, a recession ends do you call it? Ended. Around a year. The most recent recession, which was a very brief recession associated with the COVID pandemic, the numbers just stared out of the data. There was no ambiguity. You can see almost to the day when in late March of 2020, uh, the, the bottom fell out of the economy. And then a couple of months later, it was it was expanding. So it was a very short and very deep recession. Yeah. And we all know exactly how that how it got started and what the exogenous shock was that caused the trouble. We can always remember what day we were told, don't come back to the office. <laughs> or when you got sick. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, I think I, I think I caught COVID on a flight from England in March of 2020. Oh, okay. Uh, You're an early victim. I'm an, yes. I, of course, I couldn't get tested back in, back in that early period. So I, I never really was sure. But my my daughter was, and she wouldn't let me near her kids, so I knew there was an issue. Do you, let me ask you about that because th- this was an unusual one. 
there, there is another period. I, I asked Bob Solo, in fact, about this, and I'm curious what you think. You know, 1946 was another period when it was basically self-engineered uh, that there was going to be, that was the period, I don't know if you remember this, well, you, you were not, you were a small child when this happened, and as was I, but no, no automobiles, for example, were made during the Second World War. And so right. the whole armaments manufacturing enterprise had to re- be reconverted Yes. Uh, real real GDP fell substantially. There was huge inflation. Kind of a self-engineered situation. Do you think that is similar to what happened in the COVID period? Oh, no. I think it was much more fundamental. There were about 10 million servicemen. You know. Oh, it was bigger, of course. I, I didn't mean to suggest it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, wasn't much bigger. But it was self-engineered. Oh, sorry, sorry. Which, which is self-engineered? Well, both of them. Both of them. I mean, we shut down the economy because of COVID. And, and, and likewise, we'd switched from armaments to non-armaments. Right. Not everybody did well, that, actually. One, one thing I've studied is is unemployment during that period. It was actually tracked. The formal process didn't begin until 1948, but they actually had a the survey running before that. And unemployment during that period only rose a little bit. Unemployment was really very low during the war. And then during the re- recovery resumption of normality in the, in the economy. Well, I, I always struck me as being similar to the COVID in the sense that there's the big inflation. There was a big inflation in 1946, uh, low unemployment, as you say, uh, and sluggish real growth. Well, negative real growth, actually, in 1946. Yeah, but, but, but in, in COVID, the, the unemployment rate went into the mid-teens. It was... It was totally different in terms of the unemployment rate. Yes, I guess that's right. All those people who weren't working were counted properly as unemployed. And nothing like that happened uh, at the end of the war. That's true. It was just different different conditions. Bob, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I appreciate your coming clean on your views about unemployment. <laughs> Our guest today has been Robert Hall the McNeil Joint Hoover Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics at Stanford University. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.